Good news. We get to take a quiz today. And I know you woke up this morning going, I hope. I've been waiting, I've been longing. It's been so long since I've been in school. I just wish someone would give me a pop quiz again. I've got good news. Today is that day. All right, so let's see how you do. Here's how this is gonna work, okay? Live streamers, I want you to play this game at home on your own. What I am going to do is read to you from a Bible passage. And what you're gonna hear is descriptions of a person. And what your job is, is to figure out who this person is. So as I read these different descriptions and start painting the picture of this famous person of the Bible, okay, you need to kind of figure out who this person is. So here we go. Here's the descriptions. This person is called by God. A shepherd. One whose right hand I take hold of. One who opens doors that no one can shut. One whom God says, I will go before you. And one who God calls Messiah. Which, of course, if you were to translate to Greek, would be Christ. Okay, I think that's enough, okay? Let's see how you do. That's the picture. I'm going to give you these terms one more time, all right? This person is called shepherd. One whom God says, one whose right hand I take hold of, one who opens doors that no one can shut, one who Yahweh will go before, and one who Yahweh calls Messiah, or if you were to translate that into Greek, Christ. This is a tough one, isn't it? What do you think? What do you got? All right, I'm getting some conflicting answers from the floor. Let's start here. Who's going Jesus? Okay, now, who's thinking Jesus but is afraid to commit? Okay, who thinks it should be Jesus but I'm being set up? And who here listened to Ken Bauscher here in third row, uh, house right, yeah? Who here listened to Ken Bauscher going completely down divergent paths going, ooh, interesting, because he didn't say it loud enough. And see, this is your biggest lesson when you're taking a quiz, is you've got to open your ears if you're going to cheat effectively, all right? You've got to look around and be observant of what's going on around you. Because if you heard this, it seems evident. This, of course, sounds like it should be Jesus. But the prophet Isaiah writes this, not about Jesus, but about a man who's famous in the book of Isaiah, a man named Cyrus. These descriptions, shepherd, one whose right hand I will take off, uh, hold of, one who will go before me and open doors that no one can close, one who God even calls a Messiah is a pagan king called Cyrus. Whenever I hear this, I go back to that movie, Con Air, Cyrus the Virus. No, no, Cyrus, this king of Persia, who is not an Israelite. 
Cyrus was also known as Cyrus the Great. For those of you who speak Old Persian, here's his name and what it looks like. You can check it out on the screen, all right, because I know you care. And what that translates to is basically Cyrus, if you know your Greek, Kyrios, it means Lord. Let me read you some titles that Cyrus was known by in the ancient Persian world. The king of Anshan, the king of Persia, the king of Media, the king of Babylon, the king of Sumer and Akkad, mighty king, great king, king of kings, king of the world. And you can't help if you're dating yourself like me, think of Titanic on that last one, right? I'm king of the world. Think? I don't know. Cyrus, this pagan king who didn't know God, who knew maybe at most the name of Yahweh, and that only because some subjugated people group in his kingdom had worshipped this God and, and maybe an advisor at most had mentioned his name But this is a king who is not of the people of God. This is a king who is not one of the chosen ones of God. This is not one of God's chosen people. And yet look at what Isaiah calls him. God's shepherd. The one whom Yahweh goes before. The one for whom Yahweh opens doors that no one can close. The one who Yahweh takes by the hand. Even more scandalous. Yahweh's Messiah. And the question is, how can this pagan king, who doesn't call on Yahweh's name, who is guilty of the same idolatry that Israel is being judged for and many of the other same things as well. How can this one be called that by God? How can this one be chosen by God, be elevated by God, lifted up by God, blessed by God, used by God? How can this one be God's anointed one, God's Messiah? This is the question of Isaiah and this is the scandal. It's the scandal of what I like to call universality. That God can choose and does choose those who are not among the ones we think are in his acceptable people group. That God chooses to work outside of the places we think he should work. That God can select people and does select people that are outside the pale. People we think might be outside of grace. People who are certainly outside of faith. That God can choose, and often does, those that we would not only least expect, but for those who think that they're kind of on the inside with God, Almost are a little bit, how could he choose that one? Now, to be clear, what I'm not talking about today is what's commonly known as universalism, all right? Universalism, you've heard of it. 
Universalism being the basic idea that all ideas are equally correct, that all ideas are relative to each other, that all paths equally lead to God, that every faith expression is somehow in one way or another all kind of the same. No, 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 that's not what I mean at all. What I mean by universality is something different. Not that all ideas about God are true and everyone's ideas about God are valid, but that God himself can choose to use anyone he pleases and often does. And for those who find themselves on the inside with God, it often comes across as scandalous. But you know, this is the pattern of the Bible. That God chooses or elects those who you would least expect, those whom he pleases. God chooses Abel over Cain. From the beginning pages of the Bible, even though Cain appears to be the chosen one, Cain is the one that people had put their hopes in, and Abel, whose name literally means nothingness, temporary, effervescent. And yet God chooses Abel over Cain. We see God choosing David over Saul. Not the tallest, not the strongest, and not the one from the first line, but a shepherd boy from the least of the tribes and the least of his family. And God chooses to elevate him. We see Elijah blessing a pagan widow in a time of three-year famine while no one else in Israel received direct blessing. We see a foreign king in 2 Kings called Naaman, an enemy of Israel, from a people group that had a long history of hostility with them, and God choosing to heal him and bless him. But not necessarily. Those suffering from the exact same thing among his people. We see Jesus choosing disciples from ordinary, everyday folk and not from the religious leadership. We see Roman centurion responding to Jesus and being called as the one who has the greatest of faith that over and above his disciples themselves. We see women who are the first to witness and bear witness to Jesus at the tomb and not the men to whom the right would seem to belong. We see in the book of Acts in the early church, God working among various people groups who are outside the Jewish community. And the people of God wrestling with, what does this mean that God is choosing them? This is the scandal of universality, that God chooses to work through those who we would least expect. And for those who are inside with God, it can often feel scandalous that God would choose Cyrus, this pagan king of Persia, to be the one to deliver his people as their Messiah in place of or instead of one of Israel's own. Welcome to the scandal. And this, this is the way of Jesus. I love this passage that I want to share with you today. 
that comes out of Luke, where Jesus is speaking in a synagogue, and he reads to them from the prophet Isaiah. And in the midst of their excitement, he challenges them on this point, and look at how they respond. Jesus says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine through the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, pagan country. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And what strikes me in this passage is how the people respond. Because when I read that to you, it's like, hey, isn't that great? Doesn't Jesus seem kind? He's, he cares for all people. He reaches out to all people. God is involved in all people's life. Yet look at how the people of God respond. I quote, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. I am not making this up. You can read this right out of Luke chapter 4. How angry do you have to be that you are going to drag someone to the edge of the hill and throw him off the cliff? And over what? God challenging them. That just because they were the chosen people, that God was not restricted to only working among them. And theoretically, it might not be hard to grasp. But I tell you what gets difficult. When you have cancer, and you pray to God as a devoted believer in him that he would heal you. And he doesn't. But then you hear the story of a friend who doesn't know God, someone who despises God, maybe not even a friend, maybe just an acquaintance whom God chooses to heal instead. And you go through this mental game, don't you? Why them, not me? Look at what I've given you, God. Look at how I followed you, God. Look at how I've been devoted to you, God. Why them, not me? When your relationship is in a place of deep struggle and love and intimacy and passion has been replaced by coldness, resentment, and anger, And you pray, God, that you would heal this. God, somehow that you would replace this contempt that we feel for each other and, and, and rebirth something again. Meanwhile, you look at this couple who hates God to their core, who thrive in their marriage. Why them? Not me. You sit by the bedside of someone who is dying. And you read the stories of Acts, how the, the apostles would lay hands on people and the power of God would work through them. And you pray and you pray and nothing happens. 
except the grave. And you hear the stories of God working elsewhere and, and people being brought back from the brink of death in unexplainable ways. God, why them, not me? Are you starting to understand the scandal of universality? And for those who find themselves on the inside with God, there are times when it can feel like the most scandalous of things But this is the way of Jesus. Another passage I want to share with you today. One that, one that kind of, kind of brings me back to the time and place where it all began with, with Jesus and me. Because it's easy if you've been followers of Christ for a while. And many of us have, Right? It's easy if you've been a follower of Christ for a while to not only start to take the relationship with God for granted, but to almost see within it a certain level of entitlement, a certain level of, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're in this together, of starting to elevate yourself as a result of it just a little bit. But look at what Paul writes. From 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, brothers, and of course sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. And I want you to take a moment to actually do it. Think of that moment when God first took hold of your life. Or think of that moment when you can remember first having some kind of face-to-face experience with God. a new knowledge of him, an understanding of him, a sense of his presence, a coming to faith moment. Call it what you will, I don't care, but but can you identify a moment like that this morning? Think of that. Now, keeping that fixed, somewhat in place, see if this fits the pattern with you. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of noble birth. At that point of your coming to faith or coming face to face, as you look back on that moment, would you say, God came to me in that place because I was wise? Would you look back on that moment and say, God came to me because I was so influential? Or would you look back on that moment and go, you know what? God chose me because of my my pedigree, my noble birth, because of the status of who I am. Not many of us, I suspect, would. Look at what it says. But God chose the foolish things of this world. God chose the weak things of this world. He chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not 
so that no one can boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Let me say it again. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is because God is a God of universality that you are in Christ. That you are in Christ not because of the nobility of who you are, not because of the status of who you are, not because of the influence and power and wisdom of who you are, not because of the goodness of who you are. No, no, you are in him because God simply chose you. That God chose you. That God simply said, I want you. And that's enough. That God can choose who he pleases. And that we gather in a place like this today. That you watch something like this today. Because God is saying you. You, I'm choosing you. I can choose who I want the lowest of you the most despised of you, the most foolish of you. I choose you. This is the scandal of universality and it is wonderful to behold when we come back to that place remembering it is the only reason we are here. But the danger is after a life spent as a chosen one of God, to start to shore up, if you will. As though now God is here, so God will only be here. And God is required to be here. And that God better do his work here and become suspect of God doing it. Any other place. As I was thinking about this, this week, A few things came to mind, and I want to share with you three. Three ways to navigate the scandal of universality, especially when you think of yourself as an insider with God. And the first is this, to always remember, to always remember this, God can do Whatever he wants. It's self-evident, isn't it? Of course God can do whatever he wants, but don't we forget it? And we start to think that God is beholden in some way or another to me. No, God can do whatever he wants, which means God can choose whoever he wants, which means God can work wherever he wants. And Isaiah had to bring this message to Israel. Look at what he says. Look at what the prophet writes after saying, Cyrus will be my Messiah. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. To him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds of the ground. Do you know what a potsherd is? By the way, we don't really have potsherds anymore. My wife has a crock pot, right? You have a crock pot? Okay, you know how it has those glass lids? I don't know about when you do dishes, but when I do dishes, it's all about a Jenga, right? It's all about, like, if I'm not using the dishwasher, how high can you pile it in perfect, like, geometric formation so that it's like this, this, this tower to behold while I was doing it, and guess where the lid has to go? Well, let's go on top, right? 
A little bit later, I hear the crash. It falls to the ground. What do you think happened to the lid? Thousand pieces of glass, right? It was like watching a windshield shatter. I never really knew that they broke that way. I would highly recommend dropping yours at home. It's pretty cool to see. That's a potsherd, okay? In the ancient world, when they didn't have plastic, they didn't use glass, they used clay pots. They needed containers too. And pots drop. Potsherds, shattered particles, broken bits in pieces. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. To him who is nothing more than a broken piece of pot among the potsherds of the ground. Think about this, people of God. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? You ever say that to your mom? What on earth have you brought to birth? This is what Yahweh says, the Holy One of Israel. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It's I who made the earth and create mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. So I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city. He will set my exiles free. Boom, drop the mic. What do you got to say about it? Smackdown by God. I think he won the rap battle. Who are you, God says, to tell me what I can do? One of the most important things you can ever remember is that God can do what he wants. And when you start from that point, universality isn't quite so scandalous anymore. Number two, stay humble. Be humble. Because realizing that God can do what he wants forces you to a place to say, it's him. It's him, not me. I am here because God has chosen me. Not because of how wonderful I am, not because of how diligent I am, not because of how well I responded, not because of all these things that we want to use to set ourselves above. No, stay humble. Be humble. Humble yourself before God. I like how Chuck Swindoll puts this. He says, pride is the sin that will cause God to put you on the shelf. Do you understand what he means by this? He's not saying that you're unloved by God. He's not even commenting on your salvation before God. He's not saying that somehow God can't work among you anymore, but he's simply saying this. Until you humble yourself, there isn't much I can do with you anymore. Pride is the sin that gets in the way of God doing what he wants to do in you. 
Pride, as he'll say, is the sin that causes God to put you on the shelf until that time when you ripen enough in your humility to realize it's all of God. And I'm nothing more than one that he has freely chosen. And how grateful I should be that he chooses people of this world and regardless of what he's doing out there, that he has chosen me. But I tell you, it can be a hard one to swallow. There's the story of Jesus. He's at a, a Pharisee's house, one of the prominent religious leaders of the day, the chosen of the chosen. And he's dining with him. And the people at the table are critiquing Jesus. Because, of course, when you've elevated yourself, it becomes somehow we think our job to kind of evaluate others in our presence. And Jesus is there at the table. And the Pharisee and his guests are evaluating him, seeing if he really measures up to be one of the chosen ones of God. And I want to share with you today what Jesus says to him. Let me read this to you. He writes, or says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to kind of take them for a test drive. And another, I just got married, so I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the towns and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done. But there is still room. And so the master told his servant, then go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. But here's the kicker. But I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Because see, you know what pride will do? It'll do something worse than just put you on the shelf. It'll take you from being on the inside and leave you on the outside. Because in your arrogance, you will demand that God works in a certain way, according to the patterns that you've been accustomed to, according to the principles by which you think he must adhere. And when God does something surprising or new, he'll rub you the wrong way. Because that person isn't like me. He didn't do it like me. Didn't come like me. Doesn't have the quality or character of me. And it will leave you on the outside with God. No, through the pages of the Bible, he calls his people to humble themselves 
because pride is one of the greatest temptations for those who think they are on the inside with God. Do you call yourself a Christian today? Do you see yourself as one chosen by God? Take warning that pride doesn't come in in that place. That you stay humble before the one who has chosen you too. And finally, let me leave you with this. Understanding that God can do what he wants while staying humble before him, be open. Keep your eyes open to what God is doing among other people and in new ways. Because if you do, you just might see God on the move. It's a scandal of the pages of the Bible that the people of God are often taught more about the nature of God by foreigners than those who are among their own midst. That the ways and principles of God are often lived out more according to God's desires among those who might not even know his name. There's this passage where Jesus' disciples fall into this trap, and let me read it to you today. Master, said John. You know John who wrote John? And John who wrote 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John. Those aren't like his kids and his grandkids, all right? John who wrote Revelation. John who was the one who was called Jesus' beloved disciple. I mean, just, just wrap yourself in this headspace for a minute. Okay, it's, it's one thing to be called Jesus' disciples. I mean, that'll give you a big head, right? Like you're one of the 12. Then if you're among the 12, how are you known among the 12? Oh, you're the one that Jesus loves. Right? That John, master, says John. Look at what he says. We saw a man driving out demons in your name. Rock on, right? And we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Master, John said, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Can you identify? Don't stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against us is for us. God works among different people. But are you willing to look and see? Or this passage from Corinthians that I want to share with you this morning, where Paul writes, don't deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he can again become wise. If you think you've got God figured out, humble yourself 
so that you're able to see again the way God works and moves. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting. And four words, all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. All things are of God. Not all things honor God. Not all things are good to God. But all things ultimately belong to him and are under his dominion, which means God can work in all things. Even the worst of things. All things things are yours. Truth is truth. And God will work his truth in the most surprising and unexpected of places. Will you have eyes to see and hearts to respond when God unexpectedly shows himself on the move. You know, in the early church, those first Christians were Jews. They were the chosen people of God. God had given them the promise, them the covenant. God was going to work his operation of salvation for this world through them. The Messiah came from their people. Not the Messiah, Cyrus, but the Messiah, Jesus. And suddenly, those who were not among the Jews started to show evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit too. And they didn't know how to respond. They didn't know how to respond because these are not God's chosen people. How can the Spirit of God be there too? And yet God is a God of universality. And we're here today because of it. And the invitation of God is not to be scandalized, but to embrace that the powerful, almighty God of this world is bigger than we can ever imagine and to submit ourselves to the ways he chooses to work. I hope the same for you today. For those of you who feel on the outside that you know this is a God who invites you. And for those of you who think of yourselves as, the in, as being on the inside, that you would humble yourself before him and acknowledge the power of his work among others too.